Hello and welcome to The Forge. My name is James and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I've been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome the wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life, which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Welcome back to another episode of The Forge. We are pressing on with our verse-by-verse coverage through the book of Genesis. And today we are in chapter 13. So, as is the practice here at The Forge, let's begin reading at verse 1. Genesis chapter 13, verse 1, the Word of God. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. 
So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. We are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. Now, as we get into the study of this man, Abram, who will eventually become Abraham, I want to encourage you to take notes and even draw out for yourself a family tree. We're going to be talking about a lot of people over the next several chapters, and it's extremely helpful to know who is related to who and who belongs to who within the family tree. And as I start Abraham's family tree here in this chapter, I'm going to mention some names that we haven't gotten to yet. But when we do actually get there, you're, you, hopefully you will remember that they were mentioned here first, and hopefully you'll be able to see where they fit into the family. So here we go. If we start our tree with Terah at the top, he is the father of Abram who becomes Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. He is also the father of Sarai, who becomes Sarah, and that is Abraham's wife. So, yes, as we've talked about before, Abraham and Sarah were half-siblings. They had the same father, but different mothers. So, also remember that Haran dies but he had a son named Lot, who we just read about. So we see that there's 
an adoption that takes place here. Lot goes with Abraham. And as I said, um, I am going to mention some names which will come up in to our story later as we read on. But here are some names that we're eventually going to get to every one of these. So stay with me. Abraham ends up with a total of three wives. Sarah, his first wife, gives birth to Isaac. Hagar, his second wife, gives birth to Ishmael. And Keturah, his third wife, gives birth to six sons. Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. There are 12 sons that come from Ishmael, the son of Hagar's line. So these would be Abraham's grandchildren through Hagar and through her son Ishmael. Nebaoth, Kedar, Abdeil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Heda, Tima, Jeter, Nephish, and Kedema. From Isaac, the son in Sarah's line, there are two sons. So these would be Abraham's grandsons from Isaac, the son of Sarah. Their names are Esau and Jacob. Esau and Jacob. I will pause the family tree here, but we will continue to add to it as we travel through Genesis. And there are Bible study helps that are available. Perhaps you have a study Bible where this is already laid out for you. Uh, perhaps there are things on the internet. I have my own study aid that I use for the family tree. But you can draw these out for yourself. The reason that I encourage you to do your own is simply because you're, you will tend to remember it better. If you've put your own effort into it, at least for me, rather than depending on someone else's work, if I go ahead and trace it out for myself, I tend to remember it. And plus, you can personalize your own, add your own notes to it, color the lines to help you keep it straight on who's related to who. And it just helps your own thinking as we consider the line of Abraham. So there is something that I want us to notice here, though, and that is Abraham had many sons and grandsons through other women besides Sarah. Now, Sarah is the wife of promise, and ultimately we know that Jacob is going to have his name changed to Israel, and this is where the nation of Israel was going to come from. But uh, there are entire nations that to this day trace their lineage back to Father Abraham. However, the one that we're focused on, like I said, is the son of promise, and that would be Isaac. I personally believe that there are many of us today walking around the planet who have even at some tiny, minuscule amount, some of Abraham's DNA. I am fascinated by those who have done the at-home DNA tests 
only to find that they have descended from places that they personally never thought possible. They'd never heard of that being in their family. Lo and behold, the DNA is here and it doesn't lie. I haven't done one for myself, but someday I just might. And I would love to know what's in my own genetic code. But getting back to Genesis 13, we find Abram is very rich. He's rich in gold and silver and livestock. And remember at this point, God has promised Abram, and I'm going to quote here, I will make you a great nation. God also promises Abraham four personal promises, and at least one of these we haven't gotten to yet. Number one, he says, you're going to be the father of many descendants. Now that comes in Genesis chapter 17, and we'll read that later, but he will be the father of many descendants, he says. Number two, a second promise, God promises Abram a personal blessing. We just read that in chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. Go back and take a look. There's a personal blessing from God. And God promises Abram personal honor. He says, I will make your name great. And that was back in Genesis chapter 12. And he also says way back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham will be a channel, if you will, of blessings from God. So there's a particular handbook that I have used for commentary, and its title is very simple, a handbook on Genesis. I've mentioned several books at this point. This is one that I've used. It's not the best commentary I've ever read, but I do use it from time to time. And in this book, we learn about Abram's riches at this point in the story. When it states that Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. This is a typical statement of the wealth of the patriarchs. The word rich translates a Hebrew term that means literally heavy or weighty. A wealthy desert nomad would have goods and they might be thought of as heavy because of the necessity of transporting them wherever you went, wherever you took the livestock, you've got to bring everything with you. And obviously the more stuff you have, the heavier it is. And this is an implication of the wealth. Cattle translates a word referring to all kinds of livestock. So it doesn't just mean that Abram had cows at this point. He could have had a variety of different livestock. And we see this same term being used back in Genesis chapter 4. So here we also have another first in the book of Genesis, and that is the word silver. For the first time it's used here in Genesis, for the first time in the Bible, we read the word silver. And from archaeology, it's known that silver was used before Abram's time for making all kinds of things. Silver was also used for exchange because it had value. It was the money of the time. And again, we've not gotten this far into Genesis yet, but we will get there. In Genesis chapter 23, verse 16, we're going to see Abram or Abraham at that point purchasing a burial cave 
and he does so with weighted silver. They weigh out the silver. So there are languages which may not have a term for silver. I don't know of any, but uh, most peoples are acquainted with silver. But sometimes they use, and, and I guess those who study linguistics and tribes and archaeology and all the different cultures, they find that one culture will borrow a word from another culture. And in some languages, a rich person is spoken of as someone who has many loads. And again, this gets back to the heavy weight or one who has stored up many things. But this is the one that caught my attention, an owner of much metal, much metal. Well, what kind of metal? Well, a kind that's shiny like silver and gold. <laughs> So next we find Abram building an altar to the Lord. So here he is with great riches and wealth, and he builds an altar. Uh, it's the same place where he had built it earlier in Genesis chapter 12. So he's gone back out of the land of Egypt. He's gone back to this place of Bethel. And there he calls upon the name of the Lord, meaning again that he worships God. You know, God will often call us back to that very first place where we came to know him. He has so much grace and mercy toward us. And yet he calls us back to our first love. See, we're the ones that move away. He doesn't move away. Do you remember, dear Christian, when he first made himself known to you? Do you remember how you felt to know that there really is a God? This God really did create all things, and he loves me. He loves a sinner like me. Do you remember that burden that was lifted off of you? Maybe you had a brand new sense of cleanliness or you felt free for the first time in your life. What am I saying? I'm saying remember that first love that you had for Jesus at the very beginning. Don't get tired and think of it as the same old thing. I've been to church. Oh, we're going to sing the song again. I know, I know. I should have time with Jesus every day. I need to read my Bible. I need to pray. Friends, don't fall into a rut. Don't let it become habit. Don't let it become something where you're complacent or you're used to it. Remember that first love. Go back, figuratively speaking, to that altar, just like Abram went back to that place, Bethel, and built another altar. And there he called upon the name of the Lord. So in verses 5 through 9, the Lord blesses both Abram and Lot. Remember from our family tree, Lot is Abram's nephew. Abram's brother, as we've already discussed, Haran died, and Abram adopts Lot. So the land now gets to the point where it cannot support both of these huge families with all their cattle and all the required workers. And so quarrels had begun to happen. Doesn't really get specific here, but there was strife. And this can happen uh, when there's not enough land to feed the cattle. Maybe water source is at a premium. 
And so Abram offers a split as the solution. He says, hey, let's not fight. After all, we're brethren. And here you see, even though this is Abram's nephew, Abram refers to him as brethren, simply meaning, look, we're family, we're related. So let's not fight. And look at what it says. He says, Lot, you make the choice. You go east, I'll go west. You go west, I'll go east. And look at what Lot does. He makes a judgment based on what he saw for himself. The plains looked very well watered. They were green and they were lush like the land of Egypt, where even says the garden of the Lord. And so we see here that Lot is choosing his flesh. And this really and truly, it's the beginning of Lot's backsliding. He is making a choice out of a selfish, selfish motive. When we begin this course of action in our own life, we will most certainly make another bad choice that is motivated by self. Once you start down this path of self-service and selfishness, the only end to it is more selfishness. You'll never be satisfied. You'll want more. And it will lead to more and more bad decisions until the day you hit rock bottom and you turn around. So here's a good question. How would Lot know what the garden of the Lord looked like? How would he even know what it was? Is it possible that Abram had in his possession the written record of the generations of Adam? And would he have had the entire written history of the family line up to this point? See, Lot would have been educated by Abram on these things. And that's why this comparison is made. Lot was thinking, this is so beautiful. This must be what the garden looked like. So in verses 12 through 13, we see that Lot pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. So what does this mean? It simply means this. First, Lot was on the outskirts of the city. On the outskirts of the city. He could enjoy all the advantages of city life, urban life, so to speak, but not really have to move into the city. See, Christians do the same thing. Often we try to keep the blessings of God, but we also want to maintain a fellowship with the world. And we never seem to realize, we never seem to understand that these two worlds cannot live together. Certainly in our culture today, we are seeing the fruit of that kind of thinking. These two worlds will never live together. Sooner or later, one side or the other is going to make you choose. Second, in Genesis chapter 14, verse 12, we're going to see that Lot goes from pitching his tent towards Sodom to living in Sodom. And then thirdly and finally, when we get to Genesis 19, we're going to see that Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. Well, what does that mean? Well, the gate of the city is where the city magistrates would meet. It's where legal and economic matters would be settled. By the end of Lot's account, this is where we find Lot. Lot knew 
Sodom was full of wicked sinners, but he went into the city anyway. See, Lot follows his desires, and we're going to see even more where Lot follows after the lust of his flesh. So let's consider verses 15, 16, and 17, where God says, For all the land which you see, and this is God talking to Abram, all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Notice the comparison with the dust of the earth. This is in regard to the number of Abram's descendants. Just as the dust of the earth is plentiful, so will Abram's descendants be. Imagine this comparison as if you were standing on the dry hills of the country around Bethel. You're looking down over a plain and God says, it's all yours. Look to the north, that's yours. South, east, west, that's all yours. And while you might think of dust as, you know, dust is like a mass or like a cloud, something like that, really what would be accurate here is for you to think of it in terms of the particles of the dust. What's in view here is almost like, think of grains of sand. Could you count the number of the grains of sand on a beach? The point here is that it has nothing to do with the actual physical characteristics of the dust, other than the impossibility of trying to count a huge number of particles that make up the dust. And so we see that phrase, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. In other words, Abram, you're going to have a massive number of people that are going to branch out from you. Notice also this word arise in verse 17. This doesn't mean that Abraham was seated or that he was lying down or he was being lazy and he was commanded to get up and walk. In Hebrew, this term has a rhetorical function and it occurs as a command. It's a command to be followed and there's a sense of urgency with it. In other words, I'm not telling you to do this tomorrow or in the next five minutes, get up now and go do it. It's important and you should begin doing it immediately. So God tells Abraham, get up right now and go do something. What does he say? He says, you're going to go look at the land. You're going to go survey the land. So what turns out to be a bad move for Lot actually becomes a good move for Abram. Verses 14 through 18, find God instructing Abram to walk through the land. And why do you think God told Abram to do that? Well, part of owning a land is surveying it. So Abram is on somewhat of an inspection, if you will. Additionally, every place where Abram's foot landed was his land. And this goes back to that ancient legal acquisition of land by pacing it off by the length and the width, and that this is an order to claim it for yourself. 
So in short, God promises Abram everything that he sees to the north, south, east, and west, it's his. Interestingly, Abram's physical descendants have not occupied this land for most all of history. It is also interesting to note that the Lord's church, who is his chosen people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, we know no geographical bounds. In other words, there are Christians everywhere the world over today. There's no reason to think that God's promises to Abram will not come completely true. And indeed, we see this fulfillment in the church today. See, God does not break his promises, and he certainly hasn't broken any promises to Abram. Israel blessed all the other nations of the world by bringing forth a Savior. And additionally, Israel preserved the word of God which I now hold in my hands today as a Gentile, and I read it. It's the word of life. So as we mentioned in our last episode, go to Galatians 3.16 and see what it tells us there about Abram's seed. It says that it was Christ himself, and Abram is the father of them that believe. So Romans 4.11 states of Abraham, listen to this, Romans 4.11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also walk in steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. You see, now we have not gotten into the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, which is going to be circumcision. And we will certainly get into that when the material presents itself. But the point here is that those of us who believe and are uncircumcised, that would be all of us Gentiles, We are now sons of Abraham by our faith in Christ. And this way, we see that Abraham is indeed the father of a great nation and that in him all nations have been blessed. So with still a little time left on the clock, let's move on to chapter 14. Here now again, the words of God. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedor Laamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served, Chedor, Laomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedor, Laomer, and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Carnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim 
in Sheva Karathium, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Misfat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazizan, Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Chedar Laomer, king of Elam. Title, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Aner, that they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hoba, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedor Laamor and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol and Mamre, let them take their portion.
Chapter 14 finds us with an alliance of kings making war in the plains. We have the city-state of Shinar, which is Babylonia, the city-state of Elisar, which is southern Babylonia, Elam, the original kingdom of Persia, what we might recognize today as Iran. We have this Hebrew word, Goyim, which is the word for nations, which probably refers to a tribe of northeastern Babylonia. This is the area of ancient Mesopotamia. So why do you suppose that these nations or these city-states would band together and make war with the surrounding areas? Well, it's because this is the same group of kings who had come in and placed the Jordanian plain and the Dead Sea area under tribute. The five cities under tribute were Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar. These five cities had been under tribute for 12 years, and that's what it tells us here in chapter 14. And in the 13th year, they decide to rebel. Interesting that number 13. This number is often associated with rebellion. You can see it in other places in Scripture. And as the story unfolds, we see that this rebellion was not successful. Things didn't go quite maybe the way they thought it would go. The invasion of the northeastern kings crushed all the tribes of the north, east, and west before it reaches the five cities of the southern shores. These are the ones who started the rebellion in the first place. And notice who King Chedor Laomor attacks. The Bible says that he attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Carniam, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva, Carathium. It also mentions the Horites. You see, these words are used to describe the giants who were in the land post-flood. We've talked about the giants back in Genesis chapter 6. The Zuzim is probably a derivative of the Zamzumim or Zamzumim, and it is this group of people that are the giants. If you read ahead in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 2, you will see these people mentioned. So a question is, why do you suppose the northeastern kings crushed all these other tribes first? They probably did it because the news begins to spread and it begins to demoralize the people even before the invading force gets there. And think of it, they're killing even giants. And there would be survivors. In fact, they would let there be survivors. Why? So they could run ahead and tell people, this is one big army. These guys are ferocious. They're even killing giants. You see, it's psychological warfare. The invaders would have a reputation which would precede them in battle. And so after the invasion, we see something happening here with Lot and his family. They're being carried off by this king, Chedor Laomer. 
And here we have another first, and this one is significant. It happens in verse 13. It's the first mention of the word Hebrew. Abram is called the Hebrew. Abram, the Hebrew, goes in with his 318 men to rescue Lot and his family. And it is possible that Abram had help from the surrounding survivors and the Amorites. These are mentioned here in the scripture as allies of Abram. It only makes sense that they would go in and assist Abram. But even with the help, they would be outnumbered. So for the Bible student that is listening to this, for the Christian who has read their Bible and they know their Bible stories, can you think of another time in Scripture where a small army of 300 defeated an army of 135,000? Can you think of that story? Well, go read the book of Judges. Start with chapter 6 and verse 7 and read all the way through to chapter 8, verse 10. and You'll see what I'm talking about. But Abram knows here, he goes in, he rescues Lot, and he knows that God gave him the victory. He is somewhat of a king, or you could think of a tribal chieftain at this point. We know that God has blessed Abram already at this point, as we've talked about with the silver and the gold and cattle, and apparently he has many servants that were even born in his own house which means that Abram at this point is indeed becoming a patriarch. In verses 17 through 24, it brings us to one of the most famous people in the Bible, and his name is Melchizedek. He is the king of Salem. The scripture tells us that he was a priest of the Most High God, And 900 years later, King David writes about him in Psalm 110, verse 4. 1,900 years later, Melchizedek is mentioned in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. He's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 7. So you see, once again, I'm going to remind you, dear Christian, that if you reject the truthfulness of Genesis and you desire to remain consistent, you're going to have to reject many other parts of the Bible. You're going to have issues with other parts of the Bible if you don't believe in Genesis. For the skeptic who doesn't believe in the book of Genesis to begin with, they will also make this observation. They'll say, so you want to pick and choose. You're not being consistent. And you have to be consistent. Either the Bible is what it claims to be, and there are internal proofs that show that, or it is not. Of course, you can pick and choose. You can make up whatever you want to. I'm just pointing out that you're not being consistent. See, if Genesis is false, and since the book of Hebrews makes reference to a man who is written about in a false book, then Hebrews is discredited. And Hebrews is part of the New Testament, and it's intended for a Christ-following Hebrew audience. That doesn't mean that we don't get anything out of it as Gentiles, but it's called the book of Hebrews for a reason. So if Genesis is false, then King David is writing about a fictitious person in Psalm 110, verse 4. 
So if the writer of Hebrews and King David are wrong about these things, then what else are they wrong about? Do you see where it goes? So I hope, dear Christian, that you can see the importance of believing the book of Genesis. So let's talk about Melchizedek. If we analyze his name, we find the Hebrew word Melech, which means king, and another word Zedek, which means righteousness. His name literally means king of righteousness. And Salem, you may already know this, means peace. Thus, he was the king of the city of peace. Who do you know that is the king of righteousness and the king of the city of peace? Who do you know? And I'm going to talk more about this later, but Melchizedek uses the term El Elyon, uh, which we translate in English as the Most High God. And I want to come back to that later. But what I want to point out to you here is that we have this character, Melchizedek, who is introduced to us, and there's an emphasis here that he is both a king and a priest, king of righteousness and the king of the city of peace. He says he's a priest to the Most High God. So as such, he sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't he? In fact, he is a type of Christ, who is what? Our prophet, our priest, and our king. And guess what we find in Psalm 76, verse 2? We find that Salem was apparently an ancient name for this other city, Jerusalem. And anytime you're reading scripture and you come across the syllable ja or ya at the beginning of a word, like in this case, Jerusalem, it is the first syllable of the Hebrew name for God. Now in Hebrew, they don't have the ja sound. It's ya. So you would have Jerusalem. But we... Often you will hear this syllable in uh, the name of God as Yahweh or Jehovah. It wasn't Jehovah. It was Yahweh, more than likely. But when we say the word Jerusalem, we are literally making reference to God's city of peace. So I want to get back to this term uh, El Elyon. Melchizedek says that El Elyon is the possessor of heaven and earth. And Abraham recognized that Melchizedek is representing the same God that Abram himself worshipped. Melchizedek is the first priest that we ever find in Scripture. So here we have the first time of the mention of the word priest. We have the first time of the word priest peace. So there's a lot of first things happening here centered around this person named Melchizedek. And I want to get to that Hebrew phrase El Elyon. It's actually derived from another term. El, and you've heard me talk about this before, anytime you see that word or those two letters together in English, E-L, it's stating something about God. The word Israel, Israel, it literally means governed by God. 
El. But El is the supreme god in the Canaanite pantheon around the time of Abraham. And it was not uncommon for this El false god to have titles like El Olem, which means everlasting God. But you see the patriarchs using these titles for the Lord, the one true living God, the creator of heaven and earth. And you'll notice that Abram interpreted Melchizedek's praise in this way. But when Abram says it back and he uses the same title, which would be El Elyon, the God of heaven and earth, Abram adds the covenantal divine name Lord. And remember, I've told you that when you come across the word Lord in your Bibles and depending on which edition you have and the editors that you had, a lot of times they will capitalize the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. The editors are communicating to you there that that is the sacred name of God, which we would say is Yahweh. So Abram says back to Melchizedek, Yahweh is El Elyon. And you'll see here that Abram gives Melchizedek a tithe of all. This is the first time we see that happening. And what is significant about that is Abram is showing honor to this priest, this king of Salem, Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek was probably a Canaanite who had come to know the one true living God. A pagan priest could not meaningfully have blessed Abram, nor would have Abram taken it. He was consecrating the land to the Lord, and that's also what was going on back in chapter 12, verse 7. And Abram gives a tithe to this priest, and he certainly would not have done that to a depraved Canaanite god, El. So Melchizedek brings out the wine and the bread, and these are the same elements that we as Christians call, what do we call it? the Lord's table, or we call it communion. And this is actually one cup of the traditional Passover feast, but this is one of the signs of the new covenant given in Christ. And it is an ordinance of the church. In fact, Jesus says, this is the covenant and it's in my blood. It's a new covenant. So possibly the bread and the wine were part of a thank offering to God for the safe return of Abram, his army, Lot and his family, and the inclusion of both elements, the bread and the wine, also means that there was a full meal provided. So the idea here is that there was food and drink. There was something solid and there was something liquid. So Melchizedek gives a blessing to Abram, which shows that Melchizedek is actually superior. And his superiority was recognized by everyone there. And David mentions Melchizedek, as I've said in Psalm 110 and verse 4, and he shows that Melchizedek was 
pre-Levitical, meaning before the Levitical priesthood, before the Levites, he was now part of an order of priest. So we have Melchizedek and there's an order of them. David uses the word Adonai, which means my Lord, and he shows that this is an eternal order of priests. In Hebrews, we read that Melchizedek was out mother or father. He had no beginning or end of days, of days or end of days. In Hebrews uh, chapter 7, verse 3, we also read that Melchizedek was made like unto the Son of God, and he remains a priest forever. So this kind of terminology, these phrases, they raise many questions about Melchizedek. All of them are remarkably interesting. First question might be, how did he come to be recognized as God's priest, especially by Abram? Well, I believe that God has always been merciful to those who would seek him. I also believe that even in a pagan culture, there was still a knowledge of the one true and living God. Remember, we're not too far removed at this point from the Ark of Noah and the Tower of Babel. So there was certainly people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, even back then, who had heard the correct account of man's history up to this point in time. And God was merciful to Melchizedek, who could have been very likely a Canaanite and apparently was part of an eternal order of priests of the Most High God. So here's a second and third question. Abram was called by God to start a new nation, but Abram recognized Melchizedek as superior. So that's what's meant by giving him a tithe. Abram tithed to Melchizedek. Why? If Melchizedek was superior, why not have him start the new nation? Why did God call Abram? Well, there's different views on Melchizedek and who he was and even who he is. And these views attempt to answer these kinds of questions, and each view raises even more questions in my mind, and they can't be easily answered. And there are reasons why each one could be right, and there's just as many reasons why they could be wrong. So here are two different views I'll give you, and you can make up your own mind. Some believe a Hebrew tradition that says Melchizedek is Shem. In this case, Melchizedek is actually a title. If you look at our timeline, assuming there's no gaps, Shem, Noah's son, was still alive 35 years after Abraham's death. Shem could have left after the Tower of Babel. He could have been the custodian of the patriarchal records called the Generations of Adam. And notice that there's no sections in the scripture called the Generations of Abraham, just the generations of Adam in scripture. So the idea is that Shem could have passed the records on to Isaac, Abraham's son. You've heard me talk about this before. The eternal priesthood of Melchizedek could simply mean that from Shem would come the seed, Jesus. And as I've said in Melchizedek, we see a type of Christ. Jesus, as we know, has no beginning and no end and no end of life. Shem would have appeared to be that way, uh, no beginning, because he was a survivor from the pre-flood world. So while this theory sounds good, 
it has its own set of problems, not the least of which, if it was Shem, why doesn't the Bible just simply say Shem came out with bread and wine to greet Abraham? Another view states that Melchizedek was actually a theophanic appearance, a theophany, and we've talked about this, meaning that Jesus appeared before the incarnation, and this would be similar to the appearance of one who is like the Son of God in the fiery furnace of Daniel 3.25. Jesus certainly is both king and priest, and he is the true king of righteousness, and he is the true king of peace and the king of Jerusalem. There's a third view, and it's actually the one that I already alluded to, and that is that Melchizedek was a Canaanite to whom God had shown great mercy and God saved him. Possibly he had started off worshiping false gods, and the one true and living God called Melchizedek out of that pagan worship into true worship. So which one of these possibilities do I believe? Uh, so glad you asked. First, let me say that none of this is a salvation issue. Uh, when I was younger, I always wanted something more mysterious and strange out of the Bible. In fact, the further off the beaten path it was, the more I would be intrigued by it. But here's the simple truth about Melchizedek. According to the Bible, he was a king and a priest. He obviously worshiped the one true and living God and Abraham or Abram, gave Melchizedek the place of honor and respect. Really, to speculate beyond this is just that. It's speculation. So we know from Hebrews that Melchizedek was a type of Christ, a picture of someone yet to come. And honestly, experience and study has shown me that perhaps the least exciting, the least bizarre, the least intriguing answer is probably the one to go with. There's enough excitement and intrigue and all the rest in the Bible without trying to add more over who a new character really was. The important thing to notice is that Abram does not take any credit for himself. That's what we need to see about this. He gives all glory to God for the victory in battle and for the rescuing of Lot and the people. He does not take any of the what would be called booty or the spoils of war. He doesn't take any of that from the battle. Why? Because he's recognizing that God will take care of Abram. We see here a test of faith and courage and generosity and love, which Abram passed with flying colors. And it seems that he learned from his experience in Egypt to protect the ones that God gave him and to rely upon God for help at all times. Now the scene is set for an even greater experience with God and an even greater revelation of God as we move forward through the book of Genesis. But you're going to have to wait until the next episode where we will keep on trucking through the book of Genesis. Let me ask you something. What about you? Do you trust God? Do you really believe he will take care of you? Or do you trust in material things and strength of others? Are you ready to have your faith tested? And if so, would you pass like Abram? Friends, I hope this has been a blessing to you. 
It certainly is a blessing for me to bring it to you, teaching verse by verse through the Word of God. Friends, until the next episode, may God richly bless you. listening to the forge podcast and don't forget to leave a review with comments let me hear from you leave a voice message through the link i hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of god's word in daily living remember dear christian you are forgiven it is by grace that you've been saved through faith may you grow in christ in the study of the bible and truly overcome wounds that were caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out, not only in you, but in all his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged. Encouraged to serve God and others as you grow in him. 